It is so good to see all your faces, to hear all your voices. It has been a joy today and a little bit of a foretaste of heaven when the saints will be gathered together to worship Christ and to celebrate the grace of God, to enjoy his goodness and to enjoy the privilege it is to belong together to the family of God. I'm going to pray and we will dive into God's word together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege it is to gather together. Thank you for providing this facility, providing us the opportunity to be here. I thank you for all those who could come. I want to pray this morning for those who are watching online who could not join us. I pray that they too would be able to experience a bit of your grace as we worship you and as we listen to your word. Lord, we ask for your blessing on our fellowship, on our worship, and especially upon the preaching of your word. Lord, we believe that your word is true and that it is what we need. So God, prepare our hearts to hear this morning and do your work in our lives for the sake of your name and your glory. Amen. I want to welcome those of you uh, who are new. I know we have some friends visiting from out of town who are here for baby showers and stuff, right? And we have some other friends who are just visiting for the first time. Welcome. We're glad you're here. And um, just as a reminder, we don't have any nursery or children's classes today, so if you're a parent and have small kids and they make a little bit of noise, that's okay. It really is. Feel free to stay. Um, and if maybe you haven't had small children in a long time and you've forgotten what's that, what that is like, this is a great opportunity for you to demonstrate grace and patience and smile at those parents of loud children and not glare at them and, and tell them to leave. So I'm not looking at you, Stephen. I'm just looking around the room. We have a lot of kids here today, and that's great. And kids, I'm excited that you're here because you know what? God loves you, and he wants you to understand the Bible. He wants you to understand his word. So listen today and see if you can learn even one little thing that you can take with you. I want to invite you to turn this morning to the book of Psalms. We'll be in the first Psalm this morning. If you've been tracking with us over the last several months, you know we just finished a series through the book of James. That is now complete. And I'd like to take a couple weeks in the Psalms before we transition to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. And we'll be in the first Psalm today. Psalms was the songbook of the saints in the Old Testament. From the time of David onward, the Psalms provided language of worship, words with which the people of God could express to God their joy at his provision, thankfulness for God's protection, words with which they could express their wonder at his character and his power, words with which they could express their suffering and their longing and their fears, but also their confidence in God's promises. The Psalms give us God-centered prayers. The Psalms give us a model of God-centered praise and worship. It's a rich tapestry of of deeply theological truths and passionate praise to God. But while most of the Psalms are directed to God from man as words of prayer and praise, the first two Psalms are a little bit different. They're not words of praise from man to God. They're rather words of wisdom from God to us. They're directed to us. And rather than showing us how to worship, they're rather intended to instruct us. The first and second psalm are intended to prepare us for a life of worship that the rest of the book will display. These two psalms call us to reject the way of the world and to rather orient our heart towards God and towards his word. Only the heart that has taken this Godward posture is prepared to truly worship. So although this text, Psalm 1, may be familiar to some of you, I want to invite you this morning to consider afresh the powerful truth that it holds and consider your own posture before God this morning. This psalm is divided neatly in half. It's a comparison, really, between two types of people. There's two types of people in the world. There is the righteous, who are blessed, and then the wicked, who are judged. We find the way of the righteous described in verses 1 through 3. Listen to God's word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Verses 1 through 3, the first half of this psalm, show us the way of the righteous. And there's four observations I want to make about the righteous man, the righteous person that this psalm describes. First of all, the condition of the righteous man is blessed. Right there off the bat, blessed is the man. What is blessing? Blessing is, in an immediate sense, it's a a feeling of joy and happiness. It's that condition of the heart and the mind of being at peace, being content. The experience of goodness and satisfaction. And this is a condition that all people want to experience, don't they? I mean, raise your hand. Do any of you not want to be blessed? Not even the kids. Everybody wants to be blessed, right? We all want to be happy and experience peace and satisfaction and joy. But this idea of blessing in Scripture is more than just an emotional state. Understood in the context of redemptive history, this word blessing that we find in the first psalm is charged, it is packed with theological significance. Blessing and cursing are woven throughout the whole story of Scripture. And as we often do, we go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis to remind ourselves that God made everything and he called it what? Very good. But when Adam sinned, a curse was brought upon the world. This curse meant separation from God. Sin brought death and hardship, futility, And the curse spread throughout the whole earth. Cain killed Abel. Nimrod painted the town red. The whole earth became so wicked that God had to send a flood. Noah's family was spared, but they carried the virus of sin within them as they stepped off the ark. And soon, even after the flood, mankind gathered at Babel. And what did God have to do? He had to to confuse their languages and scatter them in judgment. The curse was pervasive, and things throughout the first 11 chapters of Genesis were getting progressively worse, not better. The world and everything in it, everyone in it, was under a curse. The only hope to escape cursing is God's grace. And we know that God graciously raised up a man named Abraham, didn't he? Didn't he? And God promised, against the backdrop of all this cursing, God promised to bless him, to bless him, and to bless the whole world through him. The solution for the curse is the blessing of God. God enters into a relationship with this man, with Abraham. He establishes a covenant with him, formalizing his commitment to bless him. And Abraham, after that point, is called the friend of God. God loves this man. God provides for him. God protects him. And God is faithful to keep his promises to Abraham. And this is a great blessing. It's blessing. Through Abraham, as the story continues, we know that God raised up a nation. A nation that he would bless by entering into a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. After bringing the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt... God makes it possible for these people, even though they're sinners, to enjoy an ongoing relationship through him. God provided sacrifices and his law so that his presence could dwell among them, so that they could be his people, so that he could be their God. This is blessing. It's blessing. God would bring them into the land and continue his program of blessing them and eventually blessing the whole world through them as the Messiah, Jesus Christ, came through the nation, through Abraham, through David. In this law that God gave his people, in Deuteronomy, God laid out conditions for them to continue experiencing this blessing. If they remained faithful to his covenant, if they loved him, if they kept his law, if they worshiped God alone, God promised they would continue to enjoy his divine blessing. But if they rejected him, if they disdained his law, if they directed their worship elsewhere, then they would experience great cursing. There are blessings and curses depending on how they responded to God's law. 
So Psalm 1 is written against the backdrop of these blessings and these curses. I know that's a big theological rabbit trail, but it sets the backdrop for what the psalmist is trying to tell us. What does blessing mean? As we read past the psalms, we come to Christ in the New Testament, and we come to a new and better covenant, one that replaced the arrangement at Sinai. It replaced the stipulations of the covenant there and the law of Moses. This new covenant grows out of that initial promise to bless the whole world through Israel. And the good news is that this new, co- this new covenant, this new chance to experience God's blessing is open to all the world, not just Israel. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ receives the blessing of God, the blessing of forgiveness of sin, the blessing of eternal life, the blessing of relationship with God. The things that were lost at the fall, at the curse, are restored through Christ. And this is the blessing of the new covenant. So throughout the whole story of Scripture, it becomes clear that the only path to blessing, get this, this is what all this is pointing to, the only path to blessing is relationship with God. It's a relationship with God which we enter into by faith. At every point in the biblical story, Old Testament, New Testament alike, if you forsake God, if you reject God, if you choose unbelief, instead of faith, then that means you are rejecting the only source of blessing, at least the blessing that matters. Therefore, in light of all of this, when we open this psalm and begin to read about blessing, we need to understand two things. First of all, that God is the source of this blessing. This man is blessed by whom? By God. By God. God is the source of this blessing. It is his gracious gift. And then secondly, this blessing is more than just material. Although it may include material blessings, the blessings that matter most is the blessing of being right before God, enjoying a right standing before him. As the old song says, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. That's the blessing that matters. The blessing of being accepted by God, of having your sins forgiven, of enjoying God's favor, that blessing transcends any temporary material blessing. And this is the condition, the psalmist says, of the righteous man. He is blessed, blessed in the ways that really matter. It's the first observation about the righteous man. The one who is righteous is blessed by God. There's a second observation, the path to God's blessing, this path to enjoying and experiencing God's blessing, it requires something. It requires rejecting the world. Notice what this blessed man does, or rather, first of all, what he doesn't do. It says he walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. The path to true blessing requires rejecting the ways of the world. In this psalm, we see this poetic progression that unfolds, a progression and an expansion of thought. We know that a change in, in the posture towards the world, there's walking and then standing and then sitting. There's a progression there. Like Lot, who moved closer and closer to Sodom until he was living inside the city. So the righteous man avoids that kind of a progression and the influence of the world. We see varying levels of influence in counsel and way and and seat. The three different levels of influence that the world can have on a person. We even see a progression at the level of unbelief displayed by the world. There are the ungodly, those who passively fail to be what God calls them to be. There are the sinners, those who actively transgress God's law. And then there's the scoffers, those that are hard-hearted and defiant And unrepentant. So there's this progression that unfolds in this verse. And we see the righteous man's refusal to engage the world at this level. To walk in someone's counsel. It says the righteous man walks not in the counsel of the wicked. To walk in someone's counsel is to take their advice. To put stock in their wisdom. To embrace their way of thinking. We are not to reason like the world. We don't share the world's values. We don't share the world's assumptions. 
We don't share the world's priorities or the world's convictions. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 tells us, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. It matters how we think. And Psalm says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul exhorts the church. He says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, listen to this, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. The righteous man, the blessed man, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Secondly, he doesn't stand in the way of sinners. Now, this takes us beyond just the level of thinking and into the realm of behavior. Sinners are those who do, who, who do not do what God commands and who expressly do what he forbids. To be a sinner is to be one who violates God's law. And to stand with sinners is to join them in their transgression, to participate in their behavior. But the righteous man, the one who experiences God's blessing, does no such thing. He refuses not only the world's way of thinking, but also the world's behavior. Psalm 119, verse 158, says this, I look at the faithless with disgust, because they do not keep your commandments. Blessed is the man who does not stand in the way of sinners. The third level of this progression is to sit sit in the seat of the scoffers. And this is really the climax of this progression. A scoffer is more than just a sinner. He is a hard-hearted, professional, defiant sinner. This is the one who is farthest from repentance. A scoffer is arrogant. A scoffer is proud. You can't tell him anything. A scoffer is one who mocks God who laughs at his word, who disdains God's wisdom. And to sit in the seat of a scoffer is to join in, to adopt his posture and his position before God, and to identify with him and his God-hating ways. Now listen, most people don't start out intending to be scoffers. But listen, if you get your guidance from the world, if you internalize the world's way of thinking and you start to adopt the world's way of life, their behavior, partaking in their wicked acts, you will eventually join in with them in fully metastasized unbelief, scoffing at God. And friends, this is no path to divine blessing, to sit in the seat of the scoffers. Jude warns us of this in the New Testament. Verse 17 of his little letter, he says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, he's quoting Peter here, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Beware of the scoffers. Don't join in. Guard your way. Don't fall in step with sinners. Guard your thinking. Don't be influenced and take the counsel of the wicked. No, this is not the path to blessing. Now, to be sure, the one who refuses this kind of worldly compromise at all these levels, if you do that, you are not going to be loved by the world. And you may not be considered blessed by those who don't measure things according to Christ and his standard. In fact, like Jesus, those who walk in the light will be hated by those in darkness. But if you're a believer in Christ, this is what God calls us to. And it is our privilege to join with Christ and to suffer such reproach. Hebrews 13, 12 says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear 
the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. We have to remember, church, that the blessing that matters, the blessing we seek, the blessing that lasts, it's not the blessing of the world's approval. And too many of us care far too much about that. But that kind of blessing is short-lived. It's ultimately meaningless. The blessing that we are to seek after is spiritual blessing now. Walking in the light and enjoying God's favor. And it is eternal blessing to come that will be enjoyed in that city, the new Jerusalem, in eternity. The path to God's blessing requires rejecting the way of the world. Their thinking, their behavior, refusing to join in with them and adopting that posture of hostility and pride towards God. There's a third observation about the way of the righteous. Third, the path to God's blessing requires not only rejecting the way of the world, but also delighting in the word. Delighting in the word. In contrast, verse 2, he says, but in contrast to that way of compromise, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. His delight is in the law of the Lord. What is the law? Sometimes this word law gets a bad rap. We rightly understand that as those who trust in the gospel, we are not under the law, but we are under grace. And we tend to think of the law negatively as that which brings death and exposes our sin, a path that can never lead to salvation. And that is true. But the idea of law here in this text encompasses more than simply the moral requirements of God's word. What is the law? The law is simply the revelation of God. It is God's revelation of of who he is. It's what he tells us about himself. So the law here refers broadly to scripture. It refers to God's word. The scriptures reveal to us God's working in history. The scriptures reveal to us God's character. It reveals to us his will for our lives. If you want to know what God's will is for your life, it is written in ink on the pages of Scripture. And the blessed man, the righteous man, delights in what God has revealed about himself. This is in direct contrast to the previous verse. The righteous man rejects the world's counsel. The blessed man instead heeds God's wisdom, delighting in the word which reveals this wisdom to us. The blessed man refuses to participate in worldly behavior and instead delights to bring his life into submission to, obedience to God's will as it is revealed in his word. The blessed man refuses to identify with those who hate God. Rather, he seeks to identify with Christ and be conformed to his image. And notice here that this this approach to the law is not merely external conformity. No, there is delight. His affections are directed to God and to his will, his word. What does it mean to delight in the law of God? Am I just saying that you need to read your Bible more? Well, I'm not saying less than that, okay? I'm not saying less. It often grieves me to know how many Christians have never read through the Bible cover to cover. Or perhaps they've only done it once years ago. So I'm not saying less than just reading Scripture. That is a baseline requirement. But delighting in the law of the Lord means much more than that. It means much more than simply reading. Delighting in God's law means we believe it to be true. We embrace it wholeheartedly. Psalm 119 verse 160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The man who delights in the law of the Lord believes it as true. Delighting means, secondly, affirming it as good. To delight in God's law is to be confident that God's way is better than the way of the world. Psalm 119.37 says, Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. The blessed man knows that God's way is better. Verse 39 of Psalm 119 says, Turn away the reproach that I dread, 
for your rules are good. Friends, we ought not be embarrassed by anything that Scripture says. We ought not feel like we have to sort of explain God to the world because he has some PR issues that we need to help him with. No, we affirm God's word as good. Top to bottom, from the page of contents to the maps, it is good. God's word is good. To delight in the law of the Lord is to treasure it as precious. Psalm 119.72 says, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. If you could exchange a couple million dollars for your understanding of God's word, would you do it? The man who delights in the law of the Lord treasures God's truth as precious. He depends on it as necessary. There's dependency here, delighting in the Lord. Psalm 119, verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. The one who delights in the law of the Lord doesn't look for life, for life-giving truth, for life-giving comfort, for life-giving direction. In any other place, we look to God and his word. We depend on it as necessary. To delight in the law of the Lord is to do and obey God's will. It's more than just studying and understanding and and sort of liking the Bible. To delight in the law of the Lord is to delight to obey it. Joshua 1.8, the command that God gives to the new leader of Israel, he says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Why? So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. If you claim to delight in the law of the Lord, but you're uninterested in obeying what it says, then you don't understand what it means to delight in God's law. And then finally, to delight in the law of the Lord means to worship the one who is revealed in the law. This is descriptive of a heart that is fixed, not just on what God says, but on who God is. Psalm 119.62, again, at midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. The one who delights in God's word is delighting in God. And that delight will not be contained. It overflows in worship, in confession, in praise, in supplication, asking God to give us what we need. We worship the one revealed in the word. Let me ask, does this describe you? Do you delight in the law of the Lord? The next verse expands on this delighting showing us what it looks like. He tells us that the blessed man meditates on it day and night. God's truth is a fixture of his thinking. And incidentally, this is why the blessed man doesn't get caught up in the world's way of doing things, the world's way of thinking, the world's attitudes. He doesn't get sucked into that, caught up in that, because God's word has saturated his mind and his heart. Only when God's word saturates us like this Will it guide us and change us? This is what was written in the law of Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Day and night, right between the eyes, every time you go out of the door, we always, at every time, need to be conscious of what God says, of what God has revealed to us, of who he tells us that he is and what he tells us that he wants. Meditating on God's law day and night. You know, there's so much that competes for our attention. I mean, just think about this last week for yourself. Maybe even during this sermon, there's things competing for your attention. Self, circumstances, and other voices in this world. But the path to blessing is to delight 
in God's truth, to dwell on it, to memorize it, to mull it over, to wrestle with it, to talk about it until it becomes part of who we are. This will have a profound effect on your life if you do this. And this profound effect is described in verse 3. We get to this fourth observation about the blessed man. Fourth, God's blessing is seen in spiritual fruitfulness. In verse 3, what happens for the one who rejects the way of the world and delights in the law of the Lord, meditates on it? Here's what happens. Verse 3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. How many of you kids ever help your mom? Maybe you have a garden, you have some house plants. Raise your hand if your mom ever has you put water on the plants. Why do plants need water? What happens if you go on vacation and don't water your plant? What happens? They die. They need water to live. So do you think it would be a good thing for a tree to be planted right by a river? Would you ever have to water that tree? No, it's always got water available. And that's what it's like when we delight in the law of the Lord. A tree planted by a river has access to water all year around. So when the dry season comes and there's no rain, the other trees that aren't planted by the river, they dry up, don't they? And maybe even die. But the roots of the tree by the river, the roots that are dug down deep and connected to that constant supply of water, those roots nourish and strengthen the tree to endure because it has the water it needs every day. Like a tree, the one who rejects the way of the world and delights in God's word has everything you need to grow and to bear fruit. Fruits of patience in seasons of testing. Fruits of joy in times of abundance. Fruits of service in time of need. Fruits of holiness in times of temptation. In every season, the tree planted by water bears fruit. The life-giving power of the word, of God's truth, energizes the believer to do God's will. This metaphor of fruitfulness appears several times in Scripture. I think it's interesting to sort of pull them all out and put them side by side. Here, we're told that we bear fruit when we delight in the word. Then we come to John 15, and we're told that we bear fruit when we abide in Christ. Do you think those are different things or the same thing? I think those authors are getting at the same idea. To delight in the word is to abide in Christ. To abide in Christ is to meet him and encounter him in the scriptures and to delight in the truth we find there. Then we come to Galatians 5, and Paul tells us that we bear fruit when we walk by the Spirit. Again, all of these fit together to delight in the law of the Lord, to abide in Christ, to walk in dependence on the Holy Spirit. This is all the same thing. The one who looks to God's word is connecting to Christ and depending on his spirit. And this kind of person will be fruitful. Not only is the blessed man fruitful, but we also notice that he does not wither. His leaf does not wither. He endures. Here's the thing. Drought happens. Sometimes it doesn't rain. Sometimes those hot winds blow, and they blow hard. Trials, suffering, and adversity are inevitable. And some of you are facing that today. But here's the beautiful thing. Difficulty and adversity does not destroy the one who delights in God's word. The truth of scripture sustains and strengthens our faith so that we are able to persevere. This verse doesn't say that the dry seasons won't come, that there will be drought and famine, but it promises that the leaf will not wither. And finally, it says that whenever he does, he prospers. Whatever he does, he prospers. The end of verse 3. And keep in mind the context here. Even though we reject the way of the world, even though we may be mocked, even though the droughts may come and the trials may arise, if your roots are sunk down deep, nourished by the life-giving truth of God's word, then you will have success in the things that matter. Right thinking, 
godly living, spiritual fruit being born, you will have success in this realm. This is the description of the righteous man, the one who is blessed by God. He rejects the way of the world. He delights in God's word, and he bears much fruit. The second half of the psalm gives us, however, a stunning contrast. The way of the righteous is contrasted in verses 4 through 6 with the way of the wicked. Look in verses 4 and 6. It says, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There's a stunning negative here in verse 4. A very blunt, not so, are the wicked. Everything that's been said before this point is now reversed and turns on its head. The wicked are not blessed by God. Because the wicked do walk in the counsel of the wicked. They do stand in the way of sinners. They sit in the seat of scoffers. They don't delight in the law of the Lord. They don't meditate on it. And so they are not like a tree planted by a stream of water. They don't bear fruit. And they do wither. They will not prosper in any of the categories that matter for eternity. Instead of being like a tree, the psalmist describes the wicked as chaff. As chaff. Now, chaff isn't a word that maybe we use all the time. But in a society that um, much of what they did was farming for their subsistence, they would harvest grain, and they would throw all this grain out on, on a flat rock, and they would drag a sledge across it to grind it up. Then they would take a shovel and throw that grain up in the air. And what would happen is there's this papery, thin membrane around the husk of grain. And when it got ground by the rock, it would separate the chaff, that little papery membrane, from the heavier piece of grain. Maybe you know what this is like. If you've eaten sunflower seeds, you kind of get the idea. There's that little papery part around it. So they would separate that, and when they throw it up in the air, the wind would blow the chaff away, and the grain would fall back down to the ground. So the people that the psalmist writes to here, they knew what chaff was. They knew what it was. And this is the description for the wicked. And this is such a contrast to the righteous man. Because a tree is a symbol of strength, isn't it? It takes a lot to get a tree to blow away. It takes some sort of tornado. Trees grow slow, but they live a long time. They can outlive us, in fact. I've been in Israel and seen olive trees that are almost 2,000 years old. That's an old tree. Really gnarly looking tree. Seen a lot of droughts, but it's still there. Trees survive seasons and storms and droughts and wartime and peace. But chaff is the complete opposite. Because chaff is quickly and easily discarded. While trees and their fruit are very valuable, chaff is worthless. There's nothing you can use it for. While trees last for a long time, chaff disintegrates easily. While trees are rooted deep, the chaff blows away with the slightest puff of air. And this description of the wicked is followed by condemnation. It says, therefore, in verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Because they're chaff, they will blow away. They'll be separated and removed from those who belong to Christ on the final day. To not be able to stand in the judgment means that they will have no defense. They've made their choice and they've lived their life the way that they decided was best, according to their own wisdom, their own truth. And so they will be condemned by the judge and removed from the congregation of the righteous in order to receive their punishment. So the psalmist gives us his conclusion in verse 6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. I want to focus on this phrase that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Ultimately, what separates the wicked from the righteous, ultimately, what separates the blessed person from the one who perishes and is judged, what determines their opposite destinies is this. It's their relationship to God. It's their relationship to God. The wicked have rejected God and rejected his word, and therefore they perish. Christ will say on the final day, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But the righteous, the ones who are blessed, are those who know God and are known by God. In John chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and they know me. This word of knowing, it means a lot more than just possessing information. This is personal knowledge. This is relational knowledge. And God, according to the text, is intimately acquainted with the righteous. He's omniscient. He knows everything, so he sees their heart. He knows the sacrifices that have been made in secret. He knows the cost that has been paid to follow Christ. He sees when temptation is refused and and the righteous submits to God's law. God knows that the righteous is trusting in him and depending on his grace. And God cares for this person, loves them, is loyal to them. He knows the way of the righteous. 2 Timothy 2.19 says this, God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The Lord knows those who are his. There's relationship. Therefore, those who know Christ should depart from iniquity. The relationship with God is seen and expressed in the righteous life. It's important to point out this, the importance of this knowledge because we have to underline the fact. I don't want it to get lost because we're in this Old Testament text. Don't lose sight of the fact that salvation ultimately depends not on our works, not on our obedience, not on the virtue of our wisdom and our knowledge. Salvation depends on being known by God. And as those who are known by God, As those who seek the blessing that comes only from his hand, we are to reject the way of the world and delight ourselves in him and in his word. Psalm 1 presents two alternate choices for us, the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous, the way that leads to judgment and perishing or the way that leads to blessing. Which will it be? Which will it be for you? Perhaps you feel empty today, and you come to this place longing for blessing. You are longing for joy, and perhaps you're realizing today that there is no delight in God that is in your heart. Perhaps you're recognizing today that what influences you is not God's truth, but it's the world, the world's way of thinking, the world's behaviors, the world's attitudes. I want to extend the offer of blessing to you today. God offers you blessing. He offers you grace. He offers you life in his son, Jesus Christ. What God calls you to do today is to repent, to turn from the world's way of thinking, to turn from your sinful way of life, to renounce your, formal, your, your former rebellion against God and to submit to him, to trust him and receive his grace by faith. Come and receive the blessing of salvation the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins. Come and enter into relationship with God today through his son, Jesus Christ. This is what God calls you to. And there are only two paths. There are those who believe in Christ and submit to him, and there are those who don't. There's not a third way. There's not a third option. Please do not reject this offer of grace today. Come and be blessed through faith in Christ. Repent of your sin and embrace God's will for you. Trust in the gospel that Christ died for your sins, that Christ rose again, that Christ has ascended to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Trust in him today and bow your knee to Christ. Believers, many of you here today are believers. Do you find yourself withering today? It's been a dry season, hasn't it? Coronavirus, political unrest, economic uncertainties. We live in a fractured society. Has this put a strain on the joy and the peace and the blessing that you've experienced? Or 
Is your heart being nourished and strengthened through this season by the life-giving truth of God's word? You know, really, times like this where our world is all jumbled up and everything has become complicated and there's difficulty and there's pain and there's heartache, it's good for us, and here's why. It exposes the fact that some of us have very shallow roots. It exposes the fact that some of you are not drawing life from God and His truth. But there's other voices that are loudest in your ears. Human opinions, the news media, worldly philosophies, political agendas. You need to turn all of that off. You need to be rooted in Christ and his word. Meditating on this day and night. Not meditating on the headlines. Not, he- not meditating on the what ifs of tomorrow. Not meditating on what's going to happen and all the uncertainties and all the problems and all the false ideas that threaten everything. You can dwell on that and focus on that and you will wither. You will absolutely dry up. You will have no joy. You will not enjoy the blessing that God offers to his children. If that describes you today, then turn back to the Lord. Draw life from his word. Resolve to delight in his truth and meditate on it day and night. Perhaps some of you want this. I think a lot of us are trying, but it's hard. It's a challenge. Life is difficult. When you look around, you say, J.D., this psalm says I'm supposed to prosper in everything I do, but it sure doesn't feel like that right now because my life is a mess and my life is difficult It seems like there's so much I lack. Let me encourage you with one thing today. To look to Christ and believe that you are blessed in the ways that matter for eternity. If I can draw your attention to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And hear this, Christian, brother, sister. Because this is what's true regardless of what you feel. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. If you suffer now, or when you suffer tomorrow, remember that there is nothing you can lose in this world that compares to the blessing that we have in Christ, eternal blessing, blessing that is real, blessing that is is impossible to lose. And this blessing is so far greater than anything you could lose in this life. Health, money, status, friendship, relationship, even life itself. You have Christ. You have his grace. You are blessed. So when you don't feel blessed, We need to come back to God's word and remind ourselves of what's true and delight in texts like these. To delight in this part of the law and the Lord. To delight in the fact that God loves me and he has chosen me and he has washed me of my sins and he has secured for me eternal life through the cross and the resurrection. And that cannot change. That's what we ought to meditate on this week. The life-giving truth of the gospel. How do we enjoy the blessing that comes from God? We enjoy that blessing as we are rightly related to God through his son, Jesus Christ. And as we rightly respond to Christ as our Lord, seeking and obeying and delighting in his word and embracing his will for our lives. So which will it be? Which will it be for you today and this week And in the years to come, this psalm is a beautiful invitation 
an invitation to come and enjoy the blessing of God. But it also offers a warning, a warning that if we choose the other path, we know how that story ends. Let's delight in God's grace and in his word today. And I I pray that if you do not know Christ, that today you would understand where blessing comes from and that you would bow the knee to Christ and receive his grace with us and delight in his gospel with us and live a life of worship and glorying in Christ with us. Let's bow and pray together. Father, we confess this morning that we deserve no such blessing from you. And if it were purely up to our efforts at being righteous, we would be without hope. We thank you, God, that you have made provision for sinners like us. You offer forgiveness for wicked, sinful, even the scoffers. You invite us to come to the cross and be reconciled with you through faith. And you call us to live a life of faith delighting in your word, obeying your word. Lord, this is such a beautiful offer of grace, but so often we settle for something lesser. I pray that, God, you would strengthen our faith today, that you would give us a hunger and a longing for your word, that we would hunger and thirst after righteousness. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Lord, give us an experience of this satisfaction today. Fix our minds on the spiritual blessings that are ours today. Focus our faith on the reality of the blessings to come in the new heavens and the new earth. And Lord, root us deeply in your truth, especially in this current season as we are scattered, divided, and uncertain, often vulnerable and at risk. Lord, root us deep so that we bear fruit and don't wither. We thank you for your word. It is precious and true. Lord, give us grace to believe it and to respond in obedience. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.